Pretty much every public key cryptography scheme out there relies on some kind of hard mathematical underlying problem in order to justify its security. For RSA, the problem is pretty simple to understand. It's a matter of the hardness of factoring large numbers. But the problem when it comes to isogeny-based cryptography can be a lot more complicated to understand. As a matter of fact, it's two separate problems or are they really separate? Today's guest talks about how he's managed to link these problems together, proving them to be equivalent, a true feat in terms of number theory and in theoretical cryptography. We're very excited to talk about the underlying mathematical hardness of isogeny-based cryptography, isogeny, mathematics, and more on this episode of Cryptography FM. Benjamin Vesolovsky obtained his PhD in 2018 at the École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne on arithmetic and geometric structures in public key cryptography. After a postdoc at the cryptology group of the Centrum Wisconde and Informatica in the Netherlands, he joined the Institut de Mathématiques de Bordeaux as a CNRS research scientist, where he is now a member of the number theory team. His research concerns various facets of cryptology with a particular focus on cryptologic algorithms related to number theory and algebraic geometry. He has contributed to the cryptanalysis of schemes based on lattices, isogenies, and discrete logarithms in finite fields. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, thank you very much for the invitation. Absolutely, we are here to discuss your excellent, fascinating work. The super singular isogeny path and endomorphism ring problems are equivalent. Uh, this might sound like a bunch of really long words to people who are not familiar with the context. So let's jump into the context, first of all, to try to illustrate the importance of your work to someone who might have some, some knowledge of cryptography, but perhaps no specialized knowledge in number theory or in isogeny-based cryptography. So isogeny-based cryptography is really important because it is the one of the post-quantum cryptography candidates. We've already had more than one episode on post-quantum cryptography. And this is a set of cryptographic pr primitives, uh, like for example, for signing or key encapsulation or key agreement um, that could be used by engineers and the entire world in the event that the current standards that we have, such as Diffie-Hellman, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, RSA, et cetera, prove to be insecure uh, in the event of a development of a uh, practical and fully functional quantum computer, which could uh, break the underlying security of these algorithms using uh, Shor's algorithm or Grover's algorithm. Um, and isogeny-based cryptography also relies on hard problems, just like uh, RSA does with the factoring problem. Uh, but these problems in isogeny-based cryptography are uh, pretty different. They're they're pretty. They're a lot more complicated. So as far as I, I know very little about isogeny-based cryptography, but as far as I understand, the problems that you're covering here, Benjamin, the super singular isogeny path problem and the endomorphism ring problem are the fundamental, the foundational problems in 
isogeny-based cryptography, similar to how uh, the factoring problem is the fundamental problem in RSA. And so is that accurate? And if so, could you explain to us, um, hopefully in, in simple terms, how isogeny-based cryptography works, first of all, and also how these problems are relevant to understanding the security or providing even the security of isogeny-based cryptography schemes? Yes, indeed, they are the, um, the fundamental problems of isogeny-based cryptography in that uh, we really need these problems to be hard if we are hoping for isogeny-based cryptography to actually be secure. So they are fundamental in that sense. If you can solve them efficiently, then you can essentially break all of isogeny-based cryptography. Um, so they are problems rooted in arithmetic geometry, which is the study of geometric structures with some arithmetic on it. So here, elliptic curves, they are curves um, in the usual sense, except when we usually think about curves, we think about lines. And these lines are, say, parameterized by the real numbers. They are a continuous shape. And here we are going to work with finite fields. So instead of the real numbers, we're just going to have finite structures. And we're going to have some arithmetic on it. So elliptic curves had, have uh, an addition. You can take two points on the curve and add them together. That's um, part of what we call arithmetic geometry. And um, isogenies are ways to go from a curve to another one. They are functions between curves or morphisms. Not any function. So a function that sends a point on the first curve to another point on another curve. They are not just any function, but they are the functions that preserve the structure of elliptic curves. They, they, they preserve the addition. They are homomorphisms. And they also preserve some sense of geometry, some continuity on the, on, on the curves. And um, what we call um, isogeny-based cryptography is cryptography that takes place on these uh, curves and take advantage of isogenies between them. Essentially, what we are hoping for is that finding isogenies is difficult. Finding maps or functions between two elliptic curves is difficult. I can very easily give you two elliptic curves with the guarantee that there exists an isogeny that sends the first to the second but um, you will have a very hard time finding this isogeny. This is called uh, the isogeny path problem. We say isogeny path problem and not just the isogeny problem because usually these isogenies are constructed as a, a sequence of very small isogenies, so a kind of a path in a graph. We look at a graph where um, all the vertices are elliptic curves and all the edges are very simple isogenies and the problem is finding paths in there. And that's what we are hoping for uh, to be difficult. So isogenies are uh, mappings between two super singular elliptic curves. And, and it is difficult to find such mappings for curves of a particular uh, criteria, um, set of criteria. And... Uh, so I'm going to just ask a bunch of stupid questions. And the idea here is that I'm going to try to ask the intuitive questions uh, as, uh, that people might have uh, if they're not from, uh, that I certainly have, uh, if they're not familiar with, with how uh, the details here work. And hopefully we can get from there to a more complete understanding. 
So you mentioned that, and you know, of course, uh, in the world of elliptic curve cryptography, we have some pretty well-defined basic operations in terms of addition and multiplication. And these are the same problems, uh, sorry, these are the same operations that would be used for any super singular elliptic curve, correct? All right, so if the, you know, sort of operations that we have for manipulating and working with super singular elliptic curves are well understood and universal, um, what, what, what would make, why, why would it necessarily be difficult to uh, achieve mappings between different elliptic curves, uh, especially since we have the sort of freedom to design these curves according to our own criteria, and especially since we very completely understand, as far as I know, uh, the set of operations that govern the world of super singular elliptic curves. So given that we have so much understanding of, of, of elliptic curves in general, how come it's still difficult to uh, obtain these mappings, so which, which are isogenous. The idea is, um, as I mentioned, you're working in a graph where the vertices of the elliptic curves and the edges are isogenous between them. And what's happening is that you can start at some point on this graph, so on an elliptic curve, and take a random walk on there. So you're going to take neighboring curves at random and you're going, to, you're going to do that for a certain amount of time. And uh, at the end, you um, end up pretty rapidly uniformly distributed in this graph. The thing is, the graph is huge. Um, think exponential. You cannot enumerate everything in the graph. And at the end of this random walk, you end up with your starting point and your end point, where the end point could be anything. And if you forget your path, it's just going to be way too difficult to find another one because the graph is so large. Okay. And so what is captured within... So we're talking about mappings between elliptic curves and we're calling these isogenies. Uh, what do you mean by mapping and what is the information that is captured within this mapping? Yes. So um, an elliptic curve is a fairly rich structure. It, it has at the same time some geometric structure, meaning that it has, it has a shape. You have a notion of, of topology on it. And it has an algebraic structure. It has this uh, additive um, structure. You can add two points together. And the isogenies preserve both. So they preserve the addition. So they are uh, group homomorphisms in the usual sense. But they are not any group homomorphisms. They must also preserve the geometric structure. And concretely, what that means is that they are only maps that are given by some nice enough polynomial equations. And um, it's going to be pretty hard if I give you just two elliptic curves to find a map that preserves at the same time the additive structure and the geometric structure, so an isogeny. That is an excellent answer. Uh, I think that I think that now we have an idea of the kind of information, the kind of um, also properties that you want to be able to map between the two curves, and uh, we understand. We, I think we can have some intuition as to why um, such a mapping could be difficult to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so if I understand correctly, and as we've covered previously in another interview where we dealt with here on Cryptography FM, where we dealt with isogeny-based cryptography. Let me see if I can find the names of the um, who joined us for that. So that was an interview with uh, Luca DeFeo and with Hart Montgomery. Uh, we also covered, so this was episode five. I'll, I'll link to it in the uh, 
in the uh, description of this particular episode that we're recording right now. Um, this um, the existence and the and the sort of like uh, problematic notion of, of isogenies between uh, elliptic curves is what leads us to obtain a cryptographic system built on a hard problem. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I think all public key cryptography schemes are built on hard problems. And here are the hard problems that we're looking at. Um, it, it appears that isogeny-based cryptography has historically been understood as being based on two hard underlying problems. The, the first one is called the pathfinding problem in isogeny graphs. And the second one is called endomorphism, the endomorphism ring problem for super singular elliptic curves. So Benjamin, you've managed to um, prove that these two problems are equivalent. And this is an incredible result. It's, it's a, an, as, as someone who does not have a lot of experience with number theory, but who appreciates um, number of theoretic contributions to cryptography, I think it's great to be able to obtain this level of increase of uh, confidence in the way that we can understand and appreciate um, new public uh, key cryptography schemes that are post-quantum secure. Uh, but first, in order to appreciate your contributions, we need to understand more clearly what these problems are. So could you describe to us what in you know hopefully accessible terms is the pathfinding problem in exogeny graphs yes so the pathfinding problem is probably the the simplest to express in kind of elementary terms actually i've already uh, presented it to you it's when you're given two elliptic curves find an isogeny between them or a path of isogenies in in this graph that i mentioned so you can start from a curve make a random walk end up Anywhere in the graph, if you forget the path that you've taken during this random walk, then you end up with just two points for which you don't know a path between them. And finding this path is, path is the um, isogeny path problem. Yes. So this is the classical isogeny uh, cryptography problem. Exactly. And it's, it's pretty easy to understand how you can... Well, maybe not. You might you might not be able to imagine a protocol right away, but in terms of public key cryptography, it's pretty straightforward to see that your secret will be the path, and your public key will be the endpoint. So, if you look at the set of all endomorphisms of an elliptic curve, you can have an addition and a multiplication rule. So you have a ring. It's just a set with an addition and a multiplication. And that's what we call the endomorphism ring of the elliptic curve. And the endomorphism ring problem is just, um, you are given an elliptic curve. Can you compute this endomorphism ring? Can you figure out what is its structure? Can you find generators? Can you find an explicit description of endomorphisms okay. so in there? So to me, it sounds like... Um, if you had a choice, you would study isogenies based on the... Uh, or exogeny-based cryptography based on the pathfinding problem, because that sounds like a, it's a lot simpler than the endomorphism ring problem. Um, is that correct? Indeed. And historically, um, people were first interested in this pathfinding problem, and, and later we realized that it's very closely related to this endomorphism ring problem. So I guess that the endomorphism ring problem was brought in because people realized that it's relevant um, and had to be accounted for rather than uh, people using it as, as a useful tool uh, to, to study things that could not be studied with the pathfinding problem. Yes. And one 
fairly simple way to see that these problems are related is um, by seeing how you can find endomorphisms by finding loops in the isogeny graph. So remember this um, isogeny pathfinding problem is you're working in a graph where all, every vertex is an elliptic curve and the edges represent isogenies. If I start on my graph at some given elliptic curve and I find a loop that passes through this elliptic curve, then this loop just corresponds to an isogeny that starts from my curve and ends at my curve, and that's an endomorphism. So finding loops in the graph allows to find endomorphisms, and if you find enough loops, maybe you're able to compute the entire endomorphism ring. Okay. So here in this paper, um, Benjamin, uh, you were able to prove that these two problems uh, that we just uh, summarized are uh, equivalent. And I assume that that would mean that you can basically uh, forget about the endomorphism ring problem and just focus on the um, pathfinding problem. And I guess that if you were able to prove something, uh, prove some security bound or prove some favorable security property with regards to the um, pathfinding problem, then you can assume that whatever you've just done applies as well to the um, endomorphism ring problem. And inversely, if you're able to break uh, something regarding the pathfinding problem or or uh, prove some discrepancy or some some weakness, then you would also assume that that would generalize as well to the endomorphism ring problem. So this, I suppose, is the main contribution of the paper. Yeah, so there are a few things I, uh, I want to mention. Um, first, well, yes, the result is now proven, only um, conditional on the generalized Riemann hypothesis. So... Um, it's important to note that what is now proved under the generalized Riemann hypothesis was already heuristically uh, known by the community. There were heuristic algorithms to do so. We were just not sure whether they would uh, or always work in theory. So my contribution is proving that they work, assuming the generalized Riemann hypothesis. So it's building a lot. Uh, um, it's building on top of a. A lot of previous literature, including most importantly uh, an article by Kirsten Eisentrager, Sean Halgren, Kristen Lauter, Travis Morrison, and uh, Christophe Petit, where they um, prove under many heuristic assumptions these uh, results. Um, the second thing I wanted to say is uh, yeah, so you mentioned that maybe with this in mind, uh, what we can do is forget about the endomorphism ring problem because it's just equivalent to the first. Um, I think that's not quite the case. On the contrary, it should put more focus on the endomorphism ring problem because now we have a problem with a lot of algebraic structure with, for which we know a lot of tools that if we are able to understand this problem better, then we also understand the isogeny uh, pathfinding problem better and therefore isogeny-based cryptography. I see. Okay. So um, let me let me just uh, play devil's advocate here. The uh, I suppose this is this is not really a, a great question. You know, I was gonna I was gonna ask since isogeny-based cryptography is assumed to be reliant on these two problems in order to be secure, then if you just are able to break one of them. Uh, or, or show that one of them has insufficient security properties, then you automatically don't really care about the second one, right? 
um, because the both of them are supposed to hold in order for you to obtain any security properties. Yes, in, in that sense, absolutely. If you can break one of them, then the other doesn't matter anymore, but the first one doesn't matter anymore at all because you can. it, it just means you cannot build isogeny-based cryptography anymore. Right. Uh, but then, you know, like... In the, in the practical sense, in the world of, of, of practical engineering, I suppose that this would uh, reduce the relevance of proving the equivalence between the problems. But of course, that is, um, you know, still extremely relevant uh, in terms of understanding um, the problems in a more uh, general sense and also understanding other potential applications beyond isogeny-based cryptography. And I think your point regarding um, kind of like playing the problems um, against each other because you understand that they're uh, equivalent. You can, if you're stuck somewhere, uh, you know, what I understood from what you said is that if you're stuck uh, somewhere on studying one of the problems, you could potentially make progress by studying the equivalent problem. And then if you um, obtain some progress there, you can map that result into the initial problem and then advance in studying that first problem. Is that, is that correct? Is that something that's now possible because of this work? Yes, I guess that's the hope. Um, but it gives you more handles. You, you know that you can study either problem and um, get some progress in understanding isogeny-based cryptography. And most likely what you want to do is study them both simultaneously because that gives you the most tools at the same time for cryptanalysis. Not only for cryptanalysis, but also for designing schemes. There are some cryptographic schemes that rely primarily on the endomorphism ring problem. I see. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the general work here. So this is, this is again, some really fantastic work. Um, a lot of us who don't really have a handle on number theory problems underlying uh, post-quantum cryptography, uh, I, I think are fascinated and, and, and very interested to understand how this works. But at the same time, I think uh, what a lot of us don't know is you know how do you get the inspiration to sort of start piecing together the similarities between these two problems and how do you validate your results and how do you progress uh, from just what I assume is an intuition or in your case the heuristic algorithms that were already uh, discovered by prior authors how do you progress from that into a serious proof um, covering a relationship between two um, supposedly independent um, underlying problems yeah, that's a good question. So I, I did have a lot of inspiration from from prior work, precisely because we knew heuristic algorithms to do this. However, um, the reductions I give between these problems are, even though heavily inspired, still a bit different because um, there is some um, there are some technical difficulties in the heuristic algorithms that seem to really require heuristics to analyze. So part of the work I did was to change these algorithms in a way that allows for some analysis. So um, typically uh, a lot of re-randomization. Uh, I'm, I'm given an input and the heuristic algorithms say that heuristically it will behave well. Well, what I need to do is re-randomize it, make it so that it's uniform in some set so that I can then analyze the probability that it has this or that property with uh, a rigorous proof that comes with that. So, yeah, a lot of the work is adapting the known methods to make them amenable to analysis. 
and then there's um there's a lot of um of analysis that's involved in the, in the sense of uh, of uh, analytic number theory where which is this domain of number theory where you're uh, applying tools from calculus and uh, um power series and uh, well it's everything that relates to the Riemann hypothesis for instance and that's how the uh uh, extended Riemann hypothesis comes into play. And this domain allows us to prove rigorous results on how um, things behave in numbers, um, most importantly, prime numbers. So prime numbers play an important role in there, but heuristic algorithms say that we expect prime numbers to behave that way. And now we need to make sure of that. So we call analytic number theory uh, and it allows us to prove that prime numbers actually behave like that. So there, there's several aspects. There's designing the algorithms in a, in a way that makes them amenable to a proof. And then there's digging into the mathematical literature and analytic number theory to find the required tools and putting everything together. That sounds like a lot of work. Uh, it, it sounds like something where you basically need to have, um, I would say, I would assume that you need to be able to sort of come from a perspective where there's already a foundational understanding of the underlying uh, arithmetic properties of every single element composing the uh, abstract structures that then end up being used. So uh, everything underlying the uh, ring properties, the group properties that end up being formalized as uh, elliptic curves, um, as well as other you know, discoveries um, regarding the relationships between these mathematical components. And then based on this accumulated knowledge, you can look at this and you can start from the um, heuristic algorithms here and try to uh, carve a relationship uh, through through all of, you know, your, your understanding of all the elements that I just mentioned. Is that is that accurate at all? I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to piece together what you said into a more uh, complete picture. Yeah, yeah. Um... Indeed, I, I had never opened so many books for a, a single project because it, it ties a, a lot of different tools together. Um, so looking at the previous heuristic algorithms, you have to find ways to make them simpler, and then you have to identify what field of number theory has looked at similar questions and is able maybe to provide me with the tools I need to prove that what's happening in this algorithm uh, is actually happening at how in the way we are hoping it is. That's incredible. Uh, how long did it take this sort of work to, to, like how long did it take you to accomplish this from start to finish? So I was lucky enough to have um, all my time to work on it fully without having to give lectures or anything at the same time for a few months uh, in a row. So I think I started thinking about this question maybe um, last September, so that was almost a year ago, and really seriously started working on it in January, so eight months ago. And um, in maybe four months, I had all the elements of proofs, and then there was still a lot of work to uh, make sure everything works rigorously. And, uh, of course, finding bugs and correcting them and being sure at many points that it would never work and then finding the next tool that would unlock the next step 
That sounds like a lot of incredible work. Uh, you also mentioned here that you've developed some new tools for regular, rigorously studying these problems. So that could be seen as a technical contribution and also potentially a way for uh, the audience to better engage with your work. So could you tell us more about these new tools? Yes. So um, there was this uh, tool, which, was, uh, which is commonly referred to as the KLPT algorithm, Uh, which is very useful in cryptanalysis of isogeny-based schemes, but also in construction of isogeny-based schemes. And this tool was a heuristic algorithm. So it was implemented and very efficient, and everyone could see that it works, but we didn't have a rigorous proof that it works. And I um, worked on a variant of this algorithm that I could prove works. That's, uh, well, still under the generalized Riemann hypothesis, of course. So what I wanted to say is that th this contribution where I, I take this um, previously heuristic algorithm and make a rigorously, proving, uh, rigorously proven algorithm out of it, it's also a fairly theoretical uh, contribution in the sense that the algorithm I get, I can prove that it's polynomial time, But in practice, it's much slower than the original heuristic one we had. So what we get is a new algorithm that is proven. We know that it works. But in practice, you still want to use the heuristic algorithm. The manner in which this work is conducted is, to me, still incredibly foreign. And at the same time, you know, because, you know, there's something monastic about number theory work, you know, like with, with regular cryptography work well what is regular cryptography work so with the, with the cryptography work that i'm more familiar with there's there is more of a larger involvement from the private sector which means that you get more uh, money poured in which means that people can learn more easily uh, as, a, as a result the 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 the, the sort of like um, intellectual materials are more generalized So this is even becoming true in formal methods, right? Because even in formal methods, there's stuff like um, the application of formal methods to um, zero-knowledge proofs. And like, for example, if you look at ZK Starks or something like that. Uh, and even in formal methods, the sort of like founda intellectual foundations are uh, more broadly represented in the literature. But this is not the case here. In the, here, you're dealing not only with Uh, raw math, of course, but you're dealing with this sort of like very finely honed um, sort of like artisanally developed uh, set of mathematical knowledge. And, um, you know, like it, it, it feels like it's like, you know, if, if we're dealing, here, here's the best way I can explain my question. So if we're dealing with someone who's talking about some other topic here on Cryptography FM, they, they could be talking about Um, I'm looking at the list of episodes. How to do post-quantum TLS. Um, then your reference materials would be TLS itself and, for example, uh, post-quantum um, you know, primitives, both of which are documented in, in ways that you know, an engineer could learn after some period of time. Or, for example, in the Blake 3 episode, we talked about how to design hash functions. Even that is, is better documented and more generally documented. Uh, Zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, I just talked about that. Um, let's look at, you know, more like contact discovery and mobile messengers, very engineering topic. 
Um, off the record messaging, again, super engineering topic. Optimizing cryptography for micro microcontrollers, again, relies on programming, relies on code. Hardware can be purchased and analyzed by everyone. So all of that stuff has like a way where like if you're if you're if you're desperate enough you can sort of teach yourself how this stuff works this is not true for this this, this stuff you know how is the foundational intellectual uh, material represented and why is it that i get the feeling that the accessibility here for like you know, if, if I'm to ask you, like, how can a young master's student get started working on something like this? Like, I feel like the answer would be significantly different. So am I mistaken? Or if it is different, you know, how is it different? How, how would it be different for someone uh, to, um, to get started on, on this sort of work when, of course, you don't have the same sort of, like, uh, availability that comes with cryptography work that ends up being generalized in hardware or generalized in software or generalized in ways that... Um, are motivated by by essentially what is is more, most likely uh, reducible to one source, which is uh, economic participation from the private sector. So I, I guess there is a, a fairly high mathematical barrier of entry to these topics. Indeed, uh, if you want to start working on it, you, you need to have a strong mathematical background first, um, and um, even. Even starting reading these papers, uh, most often you get stuck fairly early because you don't know what a quaternion algebra is or what an abelian variety is. Um, and I guess also another difference is that it's less straightforward to see um, where it gets you. You, you don't get a, a you don't directly get a product out of it. We don't even get a protocol or whatever. All we do is building confidence. It's uh, making sure some hypothesis is true, M making sure that something is secure, even though it's already believed to be. Right. So let me be clear. Um, the fact that you don't get a product out of it is, of course, not a detriment to the research. But it seems to me that there's a relationship between uh, how close something is to a product and the eventual proliferation of uh, publicly available learning materials regarding how it works. Um, and I, I suppose that this must be why here in this case, since you're so far away from that, um, that's, that's what's so frustrating because it, it remains incredibly interesting and valuable work, but because of its um, sort of uh, distance from uh, you know, the, the velocity of economics, uh, let's say, um, the supplementary learning materials uh, don't surface uh, in the public consciousness as readily and as accessibly as, as, as other things. And um, I, I, I'm sure you understand the problem. Um, perhaps you understand it way better than my struggling to formulate it in a, in a sentence that, that makes sense. But um, I guess my other question for you would be, you know, what can be done? Is there anything that can be done to perhaps catalog all of these notions, um, you know, like there are many, many, many engineering level catalogs of what is a uh, hash function and when and what are the different hash functions and why uh, you sh you know the difference between stream ciphers and, and what even 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 what a linear feedback shift register is, even what differential cryptanalysis is. You can go deeper and you'll still have publicly available um, documentation of that. You know, a, mo uh, a monad is a monoid in the category of endofunctors. You know, you, s you still find sentences like that, and eventually you can even understand that. But when it comes to um, the particular sort of collage of elements in your work, it's impossible. 
Like even even if I were to spend um, a whole six months trying to piece together all of the different abstractions here, all the way from you know the optimal uh, Ramanujan expander graphs managed uh, um, uh, mentioned on the first page, to the elements that you mentioned, such as quaternions and so on, uh, to uh, I don't know other elements where there's like a two dozen elements in this, I would still run short of finding all of these elements cataloged um, in one place or even in a, in a variety of places. And at a certain point, there would need to be like some uh, pedagogical involvement, you know, like the, uh, you basically have to go to school, but you don't have to go to school even to understand, you know, well, uh, what a, why a monad is a monoid in a category of endofunctors to give a humorous example. So, is there anything that can be done to motivate um, this sort of thing? You know, motivate this the same level of, of accessibility that we're now seeing happen in zero knowledge proofs and all of those other fields of mathematics. Cover the sort of foundations that you need here to produce amazing work like this. Well, that's true, and as I mentioned, I I had to open many books for this single project. Um, and there wasn't one book that was talking about every single notion that came up. Um, I guess the problem comes from, well, first, the, 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 the strong mathematical background that's required in the first place, but also the fact that isogeny-based cryptography is so young. There isn't a textbook on isogeny-based cryptography yet. And even if there was a textbook on isogeny-based cryptography, a lot of the tools uh, required to really analyze it m- might not be touched in such a book. I I suspect this book would not contain much about analytic number theory, even though it plays a central role in, in, in this analysis. Um, so um, this will come with the maturity of the field. And as isogeny-based cryptography grows, um, workshops are organized for students to start in this field. Um, there are summer schools. There are introductory texts that are written. So there is some effort in bringing new people into it. Even though, yes, it, it requires a lot of math ahead of time. And so here's here's a proposal that I have for you. Are you familiar with Kickstarter? Yes. Okay. So, would you imagine a Kickstarter for writing a, for, for writing a book, and that book would introduce every single mathematical construction in this paper? So you would start going through. Um, quaternions, uh, isogeny graphs, endomorphisms, quaternions, um, every single thing. And basically the whole premise of the book is that if you read this book, then by the time you finish reading this book, you would basically be able to read even a paper like this one as if it is, you know, plain as day. Um, what do you think about a pro- you know, would you be interested in launching this project? Maybe a Kickstarter is not particularly dignified, but you sort of get what I mean. Like if there is public support in, in, in supporting a project like this, how do you feel about actually writing a book that would, would, would have just one goal, you know, this paper, read this book. And then this paper is as, as, as clear as a book, but, uh, if it is intended for people who do not already have a math degree, that's a very ambitious project because you need a lot no, of. No, I'm talking. Algebra. I'm talking master students. So let's say first year, yeah. uh, first year's master students or second year master students in either computer science or mathematics. Um, 
For master's students in mathematics, I think it's very possible. For master's students in computer science, it depends on how math-heavy their degree was. But, well, that's probably still possible. Let's talk about... Okay, so let's set the bar at master's students in computer science then. Yes. Then... Okay. So that's that's something I would really like to see. You know, that's... I, I, think, I think, you know... To, to, to compress the very, very sprawling attempt to ask my question earlier, uh, I could better ask it as, you know, is it possible to write a single book for a first-year master's student in computer science such that all of the necessary underlying material... And, you know, I think that, that would be an incredible book. That, that would truly... Even, even if the goal of the reader is not specifically to understand this paper, just in general as, a, as an intellectual exercise of, like, being able to break through all of the barriers and actually understand um, a sophisticated and valuable piece of work like this. And, you know, one like me personally, I have no idea what a gram matrix is, but this seems to be a topic that is very popular in this paper. I, I agree. It, it would be a great project. Uh, what, what I loved in this, uh, in writing this article is the variety of notions from mathematics, number theory uh, that it brings together and um, it would, I think indeed it would be great to have one source that references all of it with a goal in mind. So the goal could be proving the results that are proven in this paper, for instance. Of course, uh, a few things. It would not be a completely self-contained book in, um, in, yeah, I'm not sure. I would have to think about what, what, it, it, it would have to be it would have to be reasonably completely self-contained. So obviously, I'm not asking you to define what a matrix is in general, but I would be asking you to keep it like as self-contained as is reasonable. Yes, you know, so, like so for that all would of the major concepts, there would probably be a big book, but it's probably feasible. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to see. I, I I wonder if so. Um, if if the listeners to this episode are interested in seeing this one big book where if you just read it, then it's as clear as day for you to understand this paper, uh, please, I don't know, tweet at us. Tweet, tweet at Cryptography FM and at Benjamin, and let's see how much support we can actually gather for a book like that being published. Because, you know, independently from this paper, there's also the question of confidence. So when I was doing my PhD, one big thing that my PhD gave me um, is actually the confidence of tackling uh, problems that seem intimidating. And in math, I think this is especially true. A lot of these, um, a lot of these words seem very intimidating. So an endomorphism, for example, if you don't know what that is, you think it's like some kind of, uh, I don't know, space time machine that works by black hole energy or something. Like it's just, it's, it's completely impossible to understand what the heck you're talking about. But once you actually learn what an endomorphism is within its appropriate, con in terms of just giving new students the confidence that they need in order to tackle, that they may need in order to tackle uh, mathematical problems, in terms of making the entire field more accessible and more digestible, that would be an accomplishment on its own, even if people have no interest in isogeny mathematics specifically. Um, so yeah, let's, let's see how much, uh, enthusiasm we can drum up with regards to that. But I think we're running out of time here as well. So Benjamin, anything to say before we sign off? Um, no, I think we, we covered to discuss about this. Um, I'm going to hang on this idea of, uh, writing a book on the topic. 
probably the field needs a little bit more match to be a, to become a little bit more mature before we can write such a book. But I love the idea. I don't think the field will become more mature until you write such a book. That's that's what I think. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. It probably it probably very helps a lot the field that you have a reference textbook on the topic. That would that would really be incredible. And I wonder if it would inspire similar textbooks for other stuff. Like someone comes up with a thing where it's like, okay, like the the NIST so let's say NIST decides what the next post-quantum uh, set of primitives are. So apparently uh, NIST is focusing right now on lattice-based cryptography, right? So uh, um, crystal Kyber and stuff like that. And then I could go to a single other reference piece of material, unless it's a very basic common concept. Um, and then uh, basically the book would cover all of that. And then we'd actually have useful modern mathematical literature that actually competes with other sciences. That would be really insane. Can you imagine a world where, where that exists? Anyway, um, Benjamin, uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to definitely edit my questions, especially in the second half of this interview, to be a lot more condensed and sensical. Uh, but um, aside from that, I really appreciate you being on the show. Benjamin Vesolovsky was able to uh, prove that the supersingular isogeny path and endomorphism ring problems are equivalent, thereby uh, both simplifying the study of isogeny-based cryptography to look at the problem from different perspectives. A fascinating piece of number theory work, which combines a lot of different types of number theoretical abstractions and concepts into one big math sandwich. Um, thank you very much, Benjamin, for uh, participating on Cryptography FM. And uh, I sincerely hope that your work uh, produces uh, novel advancements in the world of uh, isogeny-based cryptography and number theory in general. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was great. Absolutely. And maybe next time it'll be you who's on the show talking about your other number theory work that makes cryptography more understandable and more robust in new ways. Or maybe you'll be talking about something else. Maybe you've come up with a way to improve a cryptographic protocol or a way to implement cryptography in an interesting way, some new software. Whatever it is, if it's related to cryptography and it's interesting, you should come on the show and talk about it. But whatever, whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again next time on Cryptography FM. <laughs> <laughs>